Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and what's next. It's a show that asks questions and peels back the layers of our average everyday experience and goes beyond scratching the surface. We interview people doing incredible things who are making a difference around the globe. Join me as we listen in and get one step closer to understanding that big ideas shared create collaboration. Collaboration can inspire community, and communities create social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. So this has been a, a really a, a fun interview for me. Lawrence Haas, he's a doctor of philosophy. He's got a PhD. He's been teaching for over 20 years in the U.S. He's a magician as well. And so for my listeners who uh, listen on a regular basis, you know I kind of dabble in both. And so Lawrence and I talk about a lot of things. We talk about art. We, we touch on wonder. We talk what we touch on this uh, notion of reason, truth, and, and, and about systems and control, and, and, and about wonder, and about creating magic, and about why he's left the world of teaching academically. He's kind of left the academy, I guess you could say, and he stepped in to another one. Uh, he's a delight to chat with. I think you'll get the sense that this could have been a three or four hour podcast, and I bet you're sighing a deep sense of relief right now, knowing that it's not. But uh, buckle up. I uh, hope you enjoy the interview. DavidPeckLive.com. Uh, check it out for new interviews each week. Uh, check out my book, Real Change is Incremental. Working on my next one. Lawrence Haas, folks, uh, you're going to enjoy this interview. So welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by uh, Lawrence Haas. Um, he is a philosopher. He's a magician. He's a speaker, a teacher, an author. Uh, did I say philosopher as well, Lawrence? Thanks for joining us today on the show. <laughs> Hi, David. Thank you very much. Yes, you did mention philosopher. Okay. And magician. And magician. I <laughs> wanted to make sure I, I sort of got the full breadth of your, your autobiography. So... I'm going to read a quote from, from a book that you published a few years ago called Transformations. Um, it is a book about magic. It's a book about wonder. It's a book about philosophy. It's about asking deeper questions. Quote, in a famous key section of the Republic, Plato lays down a distinction between the lovers of wisdom and the lovers of sight. Plato argues these philosophers above all ought rule the city and teach the youth. On the other hand, there are the lovers of sight and sound, of art and fine things. Such people, Plato insists, are bewitched by the deceptions of sensibility. He calls them the victims of magic. Close quote. Um, 
it seems to me, Lawrence, that you have in fact gone all in and are now, as Plato would say, a victim of magic. <laughs> that is true. I started out my career and my life as a philosopher and have my Ph.D. from the University of Illinois um, and have done scholarly work in many areas of philosophy, taught for many, many years. But as my life has gone on, I've also had a major uh, change and transformation, and I now make my full-time living as a professional magician and teacher of magicians. So I have completed the reversal of Platonism. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there's a. So tell me about that. What does that mean to to reverse Platonism? Well, what is what is Platonism? Because there's a dichotomy. There's a dualism that you you know you often hear about it, uh, and and I know I think what you're talking about. But but unpack it for me a bit, if you don't mind. Yes, happy to do it. In Plato's Republic, um, Plato, as as the quote conveys, Plato really sets up a binary dichotomy between art and artists on one hand, as a kind of obstacle to good living, mm. and then reason and rationality, on the other hand, as the primary path to good living. And um, that binary it has been very influential in Western culture and Western religion. And um, so as you start out as a philosopher, we get trained in processes of reasoning and truth-seeking and uh, knowledge-seeking, all of which are immensely, immensely important. But um, almost immediately after Plato installs this dichotomy, the artists, the artists of the world start writing back hmm. and saying there's more to life than rational knowledge and empirical knowing. There is also art-making and the important things that the arts do for us. And um, so talking about a reversal of Platonism is to reverse the binary dichotomy that Plato kind of put in place and, in, and in my opinion, deforms the nature of art-making itself. Mm. Yeah, there's something, there's something that, that, you know, you kind of, it's so funny, you know, you can look back this, on this philosophy, this writing of, you know, uh, 2,800 years ago, or, or I'm not exactly sure on the on the dates, but uh, a few, a few years ago. And it's easy to look back and say, wow, I mean, come on, you, you, you didn't see that, you know, but it, there's a sense when I look at, at, at that platonic sort of dualism with respect to, you know, as he says, you know, art and fine things uh, with, you know, a dad raising a couple kids, living half a century, doing a lot of magic myself, et cetera, traveling the world. You kind of go, hang on a second there, Plato. That's all that's life, life is about. Yes. You know? Yes, absolutely. One, uh, completely. Uh, you know, the older I get as well, uh, David, and uh, it matches with my career change, hmm. is you see how really essential and important and energy-giving art is. It's uh, almost unimaginable what our world around us mm -hmm. would be like mm -hmm. if we removed all vestiges of art and design and the kinds of things that artists and designers create in the world. Um, and I, our appreciation for art deepens as we grow older, uh, which isn't to say reasoning and knowing and science isn't incredibly important, but there's more to life than just that. Do you think, do you think Lawrence, I mean, I obviously want to talk a great deal ab about magic with you and wonder and, and, and relationships and how those are sort of all tied together because I truly believe that they are. But 
So let's talk a little bit about the academy. You know, having just left it, and well, not left it, but sort of, you know, you've you've you've, you've kind of moved on. You've, you know, yeah. Um, it in some regards, a huge part of your life. Do you think that we are set up as children? You know, from from kindergarten on, from from you know, two, hey hey, by the way, guys, two plus two equals four. Don't you know? And make sure you color in between the lines. Yeah. Don't color, you know, and I see it in my kids. I see it in my daughter. I see it in my son. I see it elsewhere. And, and, and this, this lack of experimentation and you have to sit down at 310 and you leave at 335 and then you go to college and, and, you know, we're just, and, and then we're berated by these sitcoms and, and, you know, and, and, and narrative TV and narrative film that, that resolves and all this, uh, th- this life that we do seems to fall almost into that platonic dualism uh, and, and, and kind of pushes that relational sort of like, like why isn't truth relational? Uh, why yeah. is, why well, is that? Why? I mean, I believe that it is, but, but yeah. why is that so hard to communicate? There's I, a lot of questions there, by the way. Yeah. There, well, I'll, ta- I'll try to un- untangle one, one strand of it at least. I, I think, um, Part of what happens with education, and, you know, I've spent 25 years teaching in the mm, academy, mm. that's just teaching in the academy, is that um, very quickly schools and, and educational communities can move from places where uh, vital, complex inquiries are pursued and explored in community um, to places where control gets exerted. Mm. It's it's easy to see in like a high school or a junior high school how the systems for control start to trump the systems for active, aggressive inquiry, mm. and um, and that's one of the real tensions and problems is these systems for control have a way to kind of self perpetuate themselves, and people who think and live outside the box can find themselves kind of pushed out of the educational space. Now, you know. As a philosopher, uh, my very nature is to ask tough questions and to, in, you know, uh, in, in following heroes like Socrates and Derrida and others, um, to ask questions of power and control mm-hmm. and to try to keep the human spirit and the imagination flowing and open. Um, but the, the academy is a hard place because um, it's, they're marked by the discipline. They're marked uh, to some extent by coloring inside the line, right? And um, it can be difficult and painful, but also immensely rewarding uh, to be a border crosser and to move outside the mm. line. And that's certainly where I dwelt most of my most of my career. Did you find in philosophy? You know, often I hear, you know, having studied philosophy for years myself and continue to read, and now thinking about a PhD myself. Do you find that in philosophy in particular, there's a uh, a, a dualism, you know, uh, I've been raised on this whole idea of analytic versus continental. And I don't, I don't like the distinctions in some regards because it automatically immediately puts you in a box. Yeah. Um, but, but I've been wondering of late if, if there is a, hmm, um, an anti-relational component to, to a lot of the philosophy that's going on con- today, if that makes any sense. And when I say relational, I mean, um, becoming a better human being relational, Yes. You know? I hear you. Yeah, okay. I, uh, Well, yes. I mean, you know, I think when one is studying such a complex field like philosophy or physics or mathematics, really, uh, any large field, even, even uh, you know, art and literary studies, 
you start out in a place where you have to learn the basics. Right. You have to learn the preliminaries. And if you don't start by learning the basics, one um, uh, starts, you know, thinking and doing things that have already been worked through and are fairly simplistic and naive, and they don't contribute to the conversation. So um, you have to start with the basics and learn the preliminaries, but that's not where we have to end. And what often happens is as people are getting started and they're learning their basics and their preliminaries is just what you said. They put a box around those. And they forget that they're just using a set of lenses to approach a very complicated mm. field. Mm. And that there are many, many other kinds of lenses going on. So to come to your issue of relational, I believe as a philosopher a very important task is to look at the lenses themselves and recognize, oh, you've got those lenses on, and I'm wearing these lenses, and these people over here are wearing these lenses. So I have a very pluralistic view, Mm. not only of how philosophy works, but of how every intellectual field works. And um, one thing that has happened is that people in disciplines um, end up in, in a theoretical box. Right. And they forget um, that, uh, you know, we are bodies in the world. Uh, we are emotional creatures who are fulfilled by um, emotional practices like art making. And um, there have been philosophers who've tried to remind people of that as well. So I'm not standing alone, right. but I'm certainly in that tradition. Do you think that, um, um, I want to talk about wonder too, uh, but yeah. do, you, do you think that magic in some way, uh, the, maybe the, the the creation of it because you've done you've you've pretty much done it all when it comes to to magic you've 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 taught you've written you've created uh, you've performed um, you've spoken on it etc you've written about it all these things is there something about the performance of it that's something so, that's kind of primal about the vanishing of a coin or or the um, I don't know the penetration of a mirror with a knitting needle is there something that that's touching, that's relational and primal. and I mean, I know it's wonderful, but yes. does it go deeper than that, Lawrence? Well, I think you've just nailed on part of, at least for me, the real attraction to magic. Huh. Because um, magic is a place where the intellectual processes freeze. Mm. You know, when I create, as a magician, my job is to create artistic um, performances of impossible things. My job as a magician is to create visceral felt impossibilities. And when that happens, the intellectual mind freezes, just for a moment. And in the freezing of the intellectual mind, um, that's the space where genuine astonishment can kind of bubble up in our lives. And I think that Creating that for people is so important um, to just kind of having a full, rich life and an expansive vision of the world around us. So, 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 uh, can I feel that when I um, am introduced to I don't know a first of many different experiences in my life? Is that the same kind of thing? So I don't know, the first time I go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia or the first time I see a full moon in its all of its glory and its wonder, or, or are we talking about something different? 
Well, you're asking a very good and deep question. I do think oh, we can be astonished and filled with wonder in the face of natural phenomena, uh, the mountaintop, the moon, going to a really um, new land with so many rich sights and sounds. If we can feel that in the face of a child or our spouse or partner. Um, but magicians are artists who intentionally seek to create those experiences mm. and bring them to us. Mm -hmm. So there is a, con a continuity between our kind of coming across these experiences and then magicians who craft, intentionally craft, um, um, uh, very intense experiences of astonishment. Because the human mind also likes to resist astonishment. Right. It likes its patterns. It likes its, uh, it likes its little boxes. Those right. boxes right. are really comfortable. They make us comfortable. And uh, sometimes people get so hooked on the comfort of their boxes, they forget to see the moon or the mountains of Angkor Wat or, or whatever it yep. is. And then and the, the magician has a kind of calling to uh, remind people that the world is full of wonder I and remember. that our lives can be filled with impossibilities. I, I love this stuff, Lawrence. I, I, uh, wonder for me is something that has driven me both to magic and kind of the experience of it driven me away from it from time mm. to time just because in my own life I've found that, you know, you perform a coin trick for someone in a, in, let's say, at a cocktail party where I was hired many years ago to perform for a group of businessmen and women. And, and you would get those moments, those, those moments of astonishment and so on. But then immediately, you know, the finger, you know, the snap of the fingers and, oh, gee, can I see your sleeves? Or can I, can I shuffle the cards? Or, yeah. So this immediate sort of bend towards the rational, it used to make me a bit crazy. Yeah. as a magician, because I, w I, w I would want to sort of shout out loud, can you not just sit with the wonder for a little bit longer? Yeah. Like, you know, are you that rational? Have you lost your all your childlike sense of wonder? Yes. It's, it's, for some people, it's very, very hard to um, kind of hang on to the wonder. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I understand, David, that part of my job as a performing artist, as a magician, is to kind of help them relax that part of their brain That's just good. for a while. Yeah, sure. Yep. I don't want anybody to give up their rationality. As a philosopher, that's, we need that way too much. But people forget, and they habitually kick it back in yep. too soon. So part of my job is this wonderful dance where I encourage people to enter into a play space of make-believe for a while. And if someone in that play space is like, oh, I know how you did that, my job is to gently remind them, just, we're having fun here, sir. And I have found that people hear that and they get that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Right. And, and uh, it's my job to do that not only uh, for them, but for the other people who are trying to enter into the imaginative play space with us. I remember... Now, I re Go I re ahead, please. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, <laughs> I don't know why this took me there, Lawrence, but... Uh, you know, how uh, great scenes in different films and stuff will pop up from time to time in conversation. I'm a bit of a film buff, but uh, Christopher Walken, old film, 
80, early 80s, I think, The Prophecy. He, I believe he plays an, the angel Gabriel or something like that who smokes a lot of cigarettes. And mm -hmm. he's sitting on the steps and a bunch of kids are playing there. And as he walks away and I think throws his cigarette away, I really should go back and see if I can find the scene. He says, oh, study, study your mathematics, kids. It's the key to the universe. And he walks away. <laughs> it's so funny. And yet, in a great moment, and, and yet I kind of cringe when I think about it now because... Yeah. That's why we color in the lines, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's why we find it so hard to, as you stay. Well, I love your phrase, hang with the wonder, but you used something earlier. Yeah, you want to uh, explore wonder all the way through. I love that phrase. It sounds like a yeah. great title for a poem, by the way, all the way mm. through. Well, you know, you have just touched back onto Plato's binary. Right. Because there's a great truth in our need for knowledge and rationality and, and mathematics and empirical evidence. There's a profound need for those things. But there's also a profound need to let go of those things mm. because we are so much more than mm. just intellectual machines. And this is the, the great tension around the arts, um, which finds its way built into the educational institutions around us. There are art departments and science departments, and there's, you know, a Bachelor of Science and a Bachelor of Arts. Now, I tend to think these processes are not so uh, dichotomized right. as some of their practitioners tend to think. <laughs> um, there's, there's method and process and technique in the arts, and there's creativity and imagination and wonder in the sciences as well. Mm -hmm. But um, our tendency is to break them up and sometimes to diminish one or the other. So what I have found as an artist is that, um, as a magical artist, is that people feel uh, the impossible, which is overwhelming and delightful and astonishing, and they want to make it all go away very quickly. Right. So, uh, you know, um, I have learned lots of tricks over the years, as perhaps you have as well, for is counseling people to relax because we're in an aesthetic place here, a theatrical place, uh, not a epistemological place. Have you ever have you ever had people get ang by epistemology? You mean knowledge, of course, right? Like yes, I, yes. I need I need to know how Lawrence did that trick. Have you ever <laughs> have you ever had a spectator I, get like angry with you? Uh, yes, in the <laughs> early days. In the early days, as I was doing this, I was less skilled at kind of creating the feeling of a play space. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would present magic more as a kind of um, kind of here I'm doing this to you or for you, and you don't have enough of a sense of the context for it. And if I do that, when I did that, people would feel challenged. They would right. feel um, not because I was like aggressively challenging them, but it's just like whoa, you just blew my mind. Right, right. And I didn't ask you for that. Right, you know. Right. Um, so in the early days, I was less skilled at it, but seeing those reactions over time and learning and practicing and training and performing, I've learned how to create a sense of the context first, which allows people to enter into the play space without feeling so kind of frontally, um, uh, uh, so frontally kind of uh, uh, connected uh, to the magical experience. Do you think you're more interested in the question than the answer, Lawrence? Um, a very good 
Yes, yes, very good <laughs> question. I think I'm more interested in the playing mm. of the process mm. mm-hmm. and building the relationship with the audience so that I can give them a gift they might not even know they yet want. Mm. And that's the gift of astonishment. Sometimes people don't know they want the gift that I'm bearing for them. And uh, my job is to help them relax into the play space so they can feel uh, what I call the energy, delight, and wonder of magic. So you don't you don't lay it out then. This is not explicit. This is you don't. You, I mean, okay, I'm going to go. I'm gifted in hyperbole, Lawrence. You, you don't pull out a whiteboard at a performance and say, <laughs> "Hey, here's what I just did for you guys." Obviously no. not. But do you ever find yourself? Uh, or maybe in these 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 spaces that you create, I love the I love the notion of creating context. I think it's wonderful. I think that the idea of you know, I mean, we sell for you know. You talked about lenses earlier, right? I mean, isn't that all about context? I mean, as a yeah. development guy over the last fifteen years working in other countries around the world, it's all about context. And if yeah. and if you don't shut your mouth and listen, you are going to miss. You're you're going to miss everything. I think. Yeah. And I've seen it time and time again. The white expatriate comes into the room. Everybody shuts down because they know, right? They've got it all together. They're the wealthy ones. They're the ones with the books and the answers. And instead, right. it should and be... And the boxes, right? And the yeah. boxes. No, no. Hang, hang on here. You guys got 3,500 years of indigenous knowledge. How would I learn something from you? Right. And, and this idea of embrace and, and, and relationship gets sometimes sadly set aside because we're so driven by the spreadsheet or, or, or the report or whatever the heck it might be. And right, or what we already think we know. Or what we already think, which is why I love what you said about, you know, you create this space, this experience, this, this, this moment of the impossible that they don't even necessarily know that they're, that, 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 that well, m- maybe there's a shock of recognition later, right? Yeah. That's probably what, that's, I guess what, that's what I'm getting to. That's probably what you're hoping for as a magician, as a philosopher, that this, this goes a little deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's right. I, I, uh, yeah, yeah to, to to kind of circle back on something in there. Sometimes I'm performing. It, it, sometimes I'm performing in a context, and and uh, people are like, um, I know how you did that. I want to know how you did that. And for them, I need to remind them that we're playing, and that's a line I would sometimes use. Sir, we're playing here. Right. Now, sometimes I'm in audiences where I'm doing very powerful kinds of, um, of mind magic experiences, and people are tempted to believe. Mm. And in those contexts, I have to remind them that we're playing here. You know, so, so people, people can flip between trying to shut it down um, or, by, or by, you know, totally immersing in belief, interesting, and and again, part of my job as a magician is to bring people back into the play space so they can feel wonder rather than belief or disbelief. So you would probably say that we don't spend enough time playing. Absolutely, we spend an awful lot of time working, and and you know even when we're playing, we're working. Right. You know, I I had a friend once who said that um, you know people go to the mall and they're actually working. They go to the mall on the weekend and they're working because they're faced with all these advertisements and products and all the selling and the upselling and their brain is actually having to work to process the assault 
um, that is encroaching on their consciousness. So, uh, you know, at both very conscious levels and subconscious levels, we do a lot of work. And part of my, my job as both an artist and a magical artist is to just carve out a place where people can play for an hour, for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And, you know, no one ever uh, leaves my show going, um, boy, I just, I just can't wait to get back to work. You know, they, right. they, they leave the show going, oh, I, I came here tonight eating something and you gave it to me. And that's part of my my work as an artist. Do you think, Lawrence? And and okay, so so I'm going to go. I'm going to I'm going to uh, reach out here a little bit beyond possibly magic's grasp, but maybe not because I think I think you know this whole idea of, of touching something relational and deeply primal and so on um, is I think is resonant there, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. So, if we need to spend more time playing and we spend too much time compartmentalizing and with Excel spreadsheets and and, and working through the numbers, as it were. Do you think we would be, um, wow, is this going to sound corny, uh, better human beings if we spent more time at play? And maybe not necessarily out playing hockey on the street, but maybe that's it too. Uh, but, but I get the sense that you're, uh, you're sort of suggesting that, 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 hmm, I don't know, different mindset, different lens, different filter. Am I making any sense over here? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, um, there's an interesting parallel. Uh, Often people think of both magic and play as something for children. Yes, like yeah, without a doubt. Children do. That's for children. Um, children do just fine with play, and there's no problem with magic. The world is very magical to small children. They don't need to learn the lessons of play and magic. It's adults who do because we mm. forget how to play. Uh, the message in the program of modern life is to work. And so in, in our time and place, there may be other cultures in other places where, uh, where the message is too much play and more work needs to be done. But that's not our problem in the, in the 21st century. <laughs> um, so um, play is not um, a simple or infantile thing. It's a very complex uh, psychological um, approach to the world that involves adventure and imagination and taking risks, and perhaps not succeeding, and then sometimes perhaps succeeding. And um, sometimes we get so locked into boxes and patterns and paths because we're fearful of taking chances and risks that might not pay off. Um, Years ago, teaching college students, you know, I ask frequently, you know, why uh, did you settle for such mediocre work on this particular paper? Hmm. And they would frequently say, fear of failure. Hmm. I didn't want to reach. I didn't want to, um, you know, kind of bring myself into it because I was afraid I would fail. And that um, embracing a risk and adventure is um, is an really essential part of play it's interesting. that all athletes and artists know. It's interesting you bring up the fear of failure. I was While you were chatting a little bit, I, I thought of a few, I, I mean, I guess we all fall into this at some point in time um, and or, or another, but, you know, uh, in a conversation, I, I know some people who kind of 
if they're not familiar with the topic, they don't say anything. Mm -hmm. And so they completely back away. Yeah. Instead of going deeper, instead of asking questions, instead of saying, well, hey, that's actually not my field. Tell me more. And, and I wonder, I mean, I wonder if that's simply a fear of failure, a fear of not being um, seen as somebody who is in the know. Is yeah, it, I, I would agree um, completely. I think people do not want to look like they don't know. They want, don't want to look like they're like not in command and, or control or in full knowledge. And so, yeah, instead of saying, I have no understanding of what you've just said to me, notice we're adopting a, a kind of position of vulnerability there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, um, and so ego is a factor in hmm. this. Um, ego is a factor in the boxes and the lines and the feeling like I have the box and the lenses. Right, right. And, and again, both as a philosopher and a magician, uh, the goal is to remind people of the larger picture, the larger relationships, and that we are in it together in a community, either learning or having an intense magical experience. What, what's, give, give us an, ex, um, an example, and uh, maybe this is an unfair question to ask you sort of uh, off the cuff, but an example of a, a moment you remember that really stands out to you working, um, I don't know, private party, corporate events, where, where you just completely sort of undid someone. Um, it, uh, well, it happens actually a lot. As I've gotten better at the art and the craft of magic, um, it is something that I realize that's my job. If, right. if my audience is going, oh, that's clever. Oh, you got me there. I failed. Mm, interesting. Because I have settled for clever or tricky. My job is to create a profound experience of no way. There is no way that could have happened here. Right. Now, I don't always meet that high bar. But I have no doubt, as a magician and not a trickster, that is my high bar. I have to give people that experience where they smile and beam and glow, and they say, no way. Because the great paradox is, when you, as an artist, you carry someone to the impossible, it feels great for them. Hmm. You, you feel them feeling great, like it's a relief from all of the of whatever stuff that they brought to the show. So um, I can see it in their faces. I can feel it in the energy. When you create magic for a room of people or even for a person and you're successful, you just feel the energy bump in the room. Right. And that is uh, what I really honestly aspire to in every show. Can you um, can, can can you unpack? I love the distinction between your that you're a magician, you're not a trickster. Oh yeah, for me this is one of the absolutely foundational distinctions that many non-magicians don't understand. Um, tricks and fooling people and deceiving them is easy to do. Mm -hmm. It's easy to lie to people. It's easy to deceive them. It's easy to con them and trick them. And what I've learned is that doesn't feel good to anybody. Right. People don't. We have enough lying tricks <laughs> right. and fooling in our culture. Right. You know, so if that's all magic were about, there would be no place for magicians because 
politicians and advertisers and even teachers and salesmen would have it all covered. So being a trickster where you trick people um, is absolutely not my mission in life. My goal in life as an artist is to create that experience, not of he tricked me, but the experience of no way. The world is more astonishing than I knew. You know, I wonder, you know, it's really interesting. I love your, your history is so interesting to me. 25 years teaching, you've been a performer, magic, and so on. I mean, I just, I just went back to the classroom because I've done a little bit of teaching along the way. And I, I really do try to go out of my way not to teach within a box, if that makes yes. sense. Even though I'm the guy at the front, the classroom's set up the wrong way as far as I'm concerned, and I can't do a whole <laughs> lot about that. But I'm positioned as the expert. I got the microphone, literally, and off I go. And so I really do my best to break down those fourth walls and, and walk out into the audience and maybe use the odd bit of magic from time to time and use video and, and, and really try to create a dialogue. I mean, I'm teaching development, so I'm trying to teach this whole idea of participatory development. You've got to do yeah. and teach at the same time. And I wonder, you know, here you are talking about cr creating these moments, and I wonder, it just went right back to the classroom, that's kind of exactly what we don't do or we don't experience in the classroom, you know? And yeah. I think, anyway, because what we get is we get an expert up at the front telling us what we need to know Telling yep. well, you know, and what do you hear from students? Well, what we, you know, what do we need to write for the essay? Can you tell us what's on the exam? Um, Got to get eighty-five and higher because you know. And I get all that. I really, truly do. But it it breaks my heart, actually. I think Lawrence, on some level. Well, yes. I mean, I do think part of it is that um, often teachers don't understand the extent to which they need to be better performers. Mm, now, I'm not saying being a, an educator is the same as being an artist, by no means. But there is a component of performance required for every single class we teach. And no one's talking about that. Right. Because there's that binary between art making and knowledge making that we've been talking about. Right. And I know for a fact, because when I'm hired by universities and medical schools to come in and teach about these things, I know for a fact that I, as a magic performer, have skills that teachers and doctors need to be better performers. And many people are very receptive to this. Sure, yeah, of course. I would imagine. But they just don't start out by thinking that. Most college professors get into the business by modeling their previous college professors right. who were probably, to some extent, teaching off old notes because they wanted to create more time so they could do their own research. Yeah, exactly. So it becomes a, almost a, a problem of ego at that point. Right. I'm in it for myself, not for others. We're back, yeah, we're exactly. back, we're back to truth being relational. Yeah, exactly, and context, and mm -hmm. relational, absolutely. Um, you know, as a, as a magician, uh, I'll fold this back in a moment in a way I think you'll like. As a magician, I have learned every single audience I come out and perform in front of is different from the last one. Right. No two audiences are the same. And the same is actually true about every single class, even within the same course. Teachers, are, I'm sorry, students are not the same from day to day, right. from class right. to class, especially if we've been doing our jobs. So 
every class has to be a fully aware, uh, dynamic um, understanding of the relationships so new learning can happen. But that's not how we're taught. You know, we've got our notes from last semester, so we proceed. Exactly. That's a yeah. That's a great. It's a great phrase. I'm going to. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up here soon, Lauren. Sure. Sadly, but I'm going to bring it right back to your your book. And uh, for some in the audience, they're going to grow now because we're going to be talking about Heidegger for a brief second. And I'm going to ask you to unpack something. So, quote: Heidegger argues when we think technically about a thing in its details and parts, we are focusing on the thing itself to the exclusion of the larger context in which it exists and has meaning. As Heidegger puts it, we inframe the thing with our thoughts and so lose sight of its fundamental relation to a larger whole. The familiar way of putting this concern is that we miss the forest for the trees, close quote. Kind of what we've been talking about in a nutshell, I suppose, but tell us about the crime of that, missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, well, it is just what we've been talking about. Um, um, we get focused on this, that, or the number, or 2 plus 2 equals 4, or this piece of information that needs to be communicated for the test. And we do lose sight of the fact that both uh, knowledge-seeking and art-playing um, are communal and relational mm -hmm. operations. Now, Heidegger is a complicated and uh, vexed figure, um, but... Part of his genius was to recognize that everything happens in a larger context. His single most important contribution might be is this reminder that all of these operations, whether it's art making or knowledge seeking, happens in the world with mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. And um, that quote from or, or, the question concerning technology is a special essay where Heidegger opens us up uh, to the natural world uh, in an attempt to help us um, not destroy it. <laughs> mm. Well, he was very far-seeing in what, what I, could happen. What's uh, so beautiful to me is here you've spent this career working through the, uh, these uh, guys' ideas. You know, you've, you've, you've written a celebrated work on uh, Merleau-Ponty's work, on, um, you know, uh, writing about Heidegger, and now you're, you're taking it out into the, into the world that these guys were talking about, you know, uh, this idea of being thrown into a world not of our own making, and what, and then, and you're now starting to unpack those implications by um, creating art, creating the impossible. It's really quite marvelous. Well, thank you, David. I, I will. I, this is a beautiful uh, place to be because I have always understood that my work as a magician is a practical outgrowth of what I did for years in the academy as a mm. philosopher, mm. and that I am living and performing the kinds of um, things that I was teaching about in the classroom. For me, there's no disconnect between being a philosopher and a magician. Um, the, my art, artistic life is uh, just a manifestation of my, um, my scholarly life. It's, it's pretty wonderful. Uh, Lawrence Haas, uh, Dr. Lawrence Haas, a philosopher, magician, speaker, teacher, author, publisher, the list goes on. Uh, please uh, do visit him online at Lawrence Haas, that's H-A-S-S dot com, uh, and learn more about his work. And, uh, and I'm sure there's places to, to find some of your writing online as well, I would think, Lawrence. Is that yes, if people go to LawrenceHaas.com, 
Uh, they'll have access uh, to my various books and writings, and uh, they'll also find a link to my TEDx talk. Oh, nice. Which is all about my views on the nature of magical art. Well, I, real pleasure chatting with you today. I mean, I, I say this uh, genuinely. I hope we can do a part two, uh, maybe maybe later in 2016. I think we've barely scratched the surface, as I will often say with some of my guests, but really enjoyed our, our chat today. So, and so big thank you for, for joining us. Me too. It's been a great time, and I thank you, David, uh, for having me on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 